Well, hi, everybody, and welcome back to Decadent Entertainment, the podcast where we combine our love of food, film, and friendship. I'm True, and with me is my co-host, Nick. Hey. Nick, do you notice anything different about the room? Um, I'm looking around. Uh, oh, there's a, there's a pink penguin sitting right next to you. Yeah, well, when I was... When I was uh when I was a measly 21 year old, I went to the aquarium in Boston and they had these pink, blue, and I'm sure there were another assortment of colors of of stuffed penguins, but mm-hmm. I thought they were cute and I took a picture of one and I was like, well, like if I had a kid or whatever, like I'd buy this, but like I don't I don't need it for myself. And I like I've looked at that picture and I've thought about it before. Mm-hmm. And so I was back the other day and now I have one. <laughs> yeah, so today we watched Guardians of the Galaxy and we ate Mama's Pizza yeah. in Fort Worth, which was pretty, pretty tasty. Yeah, we had a sausage pizza. Sausage pizza with garlic, just garlic strewn about. I, yeah, I, I'm, my breath smells terrible. I'm glad that this is not transmitted over the, the medium of podcast because... I mean that would just be horrible. I would I would definitely have to brush my teeth. But that would be such a that would be such an innovation in internet. It's inter- like Willy Wonka. You know, it's it's like smell a vision or Wonka vision. That would be that would be so good. <laughs> so what did you think of Guardians of the Galaxy, Nick? I I like it. You know, I uh you know, I think it's a different kind of spin on on the marvel kind of thing you know obviously this is 2020 so i've seen it before and you know seen a lot of a lot of other things uh, associated with it but you know i think with the typical marvel movie you know it kind of follows the one guy and it, it kind of goes through their whole entire story but you know this one's kind of a group of people already you know just from the get-go you know like with the event with the avengers movies those are all you know those are groups of people, but after they all have their own stories, you know, the, mm. this one is one where everything, you know, you're introduced to all of the characters and how they come together and the whole story of it, you know, all in one movie. So, I mean, it's kind of, yeah, I enjoy it. I think it's a, it's a fresh perspective with, uh, with all of the Marvel movies. Well, I think that I think that one of the things I really enjoy about it, and it's obviously very influenced by Star Wars, mm-hmm. but I think it's it's not one of those things where oh, it's it's a copy or even really an emulation of Star Wars. But I think James Gunn is clearly someone who grew up with these kind of space epics and just this kind of language of exploration, these crazy aliens, technology, and worlds, and I love. I love just how vast the universe that's created here is. Yeah. And I think that I think that a lot of the times I always complain with in movies that are taking place in the future or space that if a movie takes place in space or or the future it's it's obligatory that, you know, it's going to be chrome, there's going to be a lot of blue light and there's just there's a certain aesthetic of space in the future that I think is like fairly common of of movies yeah and it's one of those things where like obviously some movies came up with that and it was innovative and interesting at the time 
But since, I mean, since Stanley Kubrick's Space Odyssey, I feel like there's this portrait of the future that's that's assumed of how it looks. And I think that this breaks that mold entirely. Yeah. And I think that I think that that's really interesting. And I think that I think that the space technology is really interesting here cuz it's not it's not just an extension of the current technology. You know, I think that some movies it's like instead of looking at a computer, it's just a big touchscreen, you know, and it's giant and you can move your hands around, but I think the technology in here is really really dimensional. The Ronan the accuser, the the big bad in this has this epic spaceship and mm-hmm. it it looks like it looks like a tower of Jenga blocks that's almost rotated. Mm-hmm. And what I found the most interesting about that is the person piloting it, piloting it was controlling this orb of matter. And everything is an orb of matter, obviously, but <laughs> it, it was as though they were they were moving and influencing this orb of mm-hmm. I mean a fluid, I guess is probably a better way to put it than a than a matter. But to control and accelerate this spaceship, which is something I've just I've never seen before, like, like touching a hologram of of some kind, and yeah. influencing it. Yeah. What I thought was interesting about that ship was, you know, at one point in the movie they they like destroy the ship, and as it's crumbling away and and things like that, like I noticed like rubble coming down, and it's it's like it's made out of concrete. Like it's it's weird, you know, that you would see like some sort of flying ship made out of something so heavy but yeah i I don't know well and it is interesting though because from a from an effects standpoint if we were i mean so let's say this ugly table in front of us if we were to destroy this table you know it's like a wood plastic blend and it would it would break the way that those materials would naturally break but if we were to make a model of this just in a three-dimensional space that had no properties of matter, you would have to ascribe to it how you would want physics and some sort of destruction to act upon it. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of those things where they they clearly had to make decisions like that to execute just so that when it does destroy, it's clearly very, very, very thought out. Mm-hmm. I think... I think that James Gunn, who directed this movie, I mean, the script and everything is obviously just like it's it's glittered with pop culture references and just uh, allusions to all sorts of different stuff, which I think he does very strongly because I think that every every joke, even if every joke doesn't land, I feel like is something that someone would say in these sort of situations in that the kind of characters and people that are created here very much are jokers. And so it's not, yeah, it's not like anyone's cracking wise that, that wouldn't necessarily the, um, one of the things that I noticed and it didn't really draw attention to it, but the Nova Corps, who is the, I don't know, the UN of space. Yeah, yeah I guess two, two things that I, I kind of, I thought about with them, is that first off, their police uniforms look like Judge Dredd. I don't know if you've ever seen that. But I, I don't know what that um, is. You know, it's a, it's a movie that came out in 2010 that was a remake of a still Sylvester Stallone movie in the 80s, but okay. it was based on this series of graphic novels. And the whole the graphic novel thing is is it was just this ridiculous police state 
and it's just kind of a ridiculous future fascist police state that was, you know, just the graphic novel from the 80s. But I think that the Nova Corps, at least aesthetically, very much reminded me of that, mm-hmm. which I just thought was kind of interesting because it's one of those things where it's not like attention is even drawn to that. But I think they had these helmets that kind of had these recessions and different eye holes in the way they were set <laughs> that that visually kind of reminded me of that. But the other thing with them that I thought was interesting is when Ronan's ship is trying to trying to dive bomb the I forget the planet, but the planet they're on, uh-huh. they form a neural network. So all of their ships fly up together to try and stop Ronan's ship and they they connect to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, so it it builds up this force field together to stop the other ship. And it really reminded me of Voltron or Power Rangers or any of these other number of like, I mean, mainly Japanese cartoons, but these these type of works when these robots and these technologies just kind of meld and combine together, which I think is yeah is really kind of cool. <laughs> the um, I I just I feel like they had a lot of fun with this from a from a production design standpoint. Yeah, even like the prisoner uniforms and things like that. I mean, they just it's kind of like a very unique take on on all of that. You know, it's it, you know, you're not seeing like the very stereotypical, you know, like white and black striped, you know, from the whatever the 40s or or something like that, you know. But or like orange jumpsuits or or something you know it's 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 like these very sleek comfortable looking uh little jumpers that they're in I well i mean i've i've said this to you before but i feel like if i was in prison i probably even said this on the show before but the jumpsuits just look scratchy and coarse and like i'm i'm wearing an olive track suit right now but mm-hmm. you know it's like it's like pants material or it's like a stretchy like neoprene and so, like, if I had to go to prison, I think that the kind of, like, jumpsuits the Guardians of the Galaxy were wearing seem a little more more comfortable. So when I'm when I'm committing my my crimes and, and felonies, I think that I need to do need space. to get a little closer to space to make it <laughs> to make it really work. Uh, James Gunn, who directed this and, and wrote this in 2014, he's actually I've, I've spent a little time with him as a filmmaker I think he's really an interesting person. He actually he started as as a screenwriter in Hollywood mm-hmm. and famously I don't know if it's famously but the the live action Scooby Doo movies from the from the 2000s we actually we've we've seen those but uh-huh. he wrote both of those. No way. And I think that his sense of humor it's it's a very tangible and unique sense of humor that I think no one no one has a sense of humor like him mm-hmm. and i i enjoy it i don't i don't think this is a parallel but watching this groot the the alien monster or plant person only says i am groot mm-hmm. and that really reminds me of scooby doo because scooby doo just says scooby doo in different <laughs> variations but he conveys so much so much meaning well i think one of the great things about the marvel movies is that they're all like very funny like iron man he's very funny and everything that he says you know thor has very funny bits that that he does and you know like you're saying the guardians of the galaxy is overall a very funny movie but i think it's something that only marvel has really gotten right with this mix of action 
and you know kind of like awe-inspiring images and explosions and and that sort of thing and mixing that with the humor you know i i think i was watching like the the star wars movie the the eighth one i think specifically like a, a lot of the, the last jedi nick the last jedi a lot of those ones that they and i i guess all of the the newer ones that they've been making my my critique on those is that they really spend a lot of time trying to do this sort of marvel humor and they just fail at it like it it just it detracts from the main story like i i don't think in any marvel movie and especially not in like guardians of the galaxy do they ever have a joke that takes me out of the action or takes me away from the from the cool explosion that just happened or something like that it's always just it's always just like a little sprinkle it's it's a little bit of something that adds to the the movie you know it it doesn't take me away from it does that make sense oh yeah absolutely well and i think that i think the other thing is that jokes and and humor as as devices and something to use in a in a movie or show i think that I think that you might have said this, but someone was saying that movies are just better when they're a little funny. Because <laughs> I feel like there's this weirdness in, you know, adults acting as though there are other people wearing costumes and all of this. There's a little bit of frivolity in these things. And I think that when there is some sort of of humor there, I think that it kind of helps people connect with it. I mean, especially especially me, and I've always kind of been been driven by the humor of things. Mm-hmm. But I think that when you're writing and formulating a story, though, nothing can revolve around the jokes. I think that I think that jokes in this characters will be in a situation and something funny will come out. But it's not like the plot in the story was structured just around getting that particular joke out. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things where I don't like. I don't like a lot of comedy movies because I think that a lot of the times it's it feels like an improv setup that's leading to a particular joke. Mm-hmm. And I think I mean I think comedy in any genre is a broad term, but I think that a lot of the times once you know the joke or you get the joke, it's like okay, you kind of understand it. But I think that something like this humor arises from the characters and there are obviously jokes within this as well but mm-hmm. it's not structurally dependent on that yeah and i think i think it's one of those things where chris pratt who is star lord the main character has a very particular comedic timing and and vibe as an actor but you know dave bautista who plays um drax similarly has a unique vibe and in humor and i think the thing is is even though those some of those jokes and ideas are written into the script i think that having an actor who has a specific voice to to bring these things to life i think i think makes the story compelling more so than it just being a a setup for a joke because i think that whenever you hear someone telling a joke sometimes if you know the punchline of the joke and you're just waiting for them to get to that it's it's a little uncomfortable and you know you kind of have to nod and you kind of have to pretend it's a it's a better joke or story <laughs> than it is but at the same time it's just you you kind of know where it's going yeah no like half of all jokes is the delivery of it and if you have somebody that's not experienced you know with that sort of thing 
they're not going to, they're not going to hit it right. And it's just not going to be as funny or it's not going to be funny at all. You know? Yeah. So having somebody with that comedic black background, like Chris Pratt, like, Chris Pratt's good. Like, I mean, he's pretty, he's pretty funny. And I was, I was really he seems into... like a naturally funny kind of guy too. Like somebody yeah. that if you hung out with, you would just be like, Oh my God. Like I this just guy. want him to be my best friend, you know? Well, and I think, I think that comedic actors or not even necessarily comedic actors, but I think that comedians a lot of the time are very talented. I mean, comedians that are, that are good and working are obviously talented to begin with. But I think that a lot of the times actors that come from comedy have a huge amount of range Mm -hmm. that, you know, I always, I always think it's funny when someone will take someone like, you know, Jim Carrey, for instance, when he's in a really serious movie, which, and of course, Jim Carrey's been a huge actor for 40 years, so he's been in all kinds of movies, but yeah. when something like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind comes out, people are like, wow, like, can you believe that he can do such a serious role? And to me, he's a talented actor who has has performed as these characters very successfully. Like, yeah. he's not a talented actor in screen presence because he is this person, He's a talented actor because he has this ability to take on different characters and auras. And so I think that with a lot of the comedic actors, people will be like, oh, I didn't realize they could do anything other than funny. But they're not they're not just there to be funny. Yeah, I I watch. He's a great example of that, too. Like, I I think in most cases, too, you would have this kind of weird dichotomy where comedians very often can go into acting but actors can't really go to comedy and do like a an hour long stand up set or, or something like that. You know, I think that's a lot less common. Maybe Donald Glover. Or, I don't know if he did his was his stand up first or. You know, I'm not I'm not too sure. I know he started 30 Rock. Um, Tina Fey's show 30 Rock yeah. is probably my favorite TV show of all time. And Donald Glover actually wrote for 30 Rock. And the reason he got a job there is that he wrote an episode of The Simpsons. So not not hired as a writer for The Simpsons, but just on his own, he wrote a script and for The Simpsons. <laughs> and they read it and thought it was good. And that's that's something I haven't done that specifically. But I think stories like that to me as kind of a writer and filmmaker it's interesting to learn from stuff like that, you know, because mm. it's it's someone who obviously understands a particular show or medium enough to really be able to do something like that. I mean, kind of kind of in line with comedic actors being different things. Sometimes whenever a, a character or a person will get drafted, you don't get drafted to do a superhero movie, but get get chosen to do something like this. Like Ryan Coogler, for instance, who directed Fruitvale Station when when he gets chosen for this people say oh has he done a superhero movie though do we know that he can do this and to me it's always funny because as a filmmaker this person's life is to tell a story Mm -hmm. and so it's it's not that they have to have told the specific story it's just that they've shown a propensity and a talent to do it which i think is is important james gunn who to to go back to him which is kind of why i wanted to watch this I was watching Super the other day, which Super is it's a subversion on superheroes in this kind of comic book mythology. Yeah. Where in in short, 
And just as a side note, first and foremost, Rain Wilson plays a fry cook who decides to become a superhero. And Rain Wilson went to Tufts University and he dropped out. <laughs> and so he's probably the most famous and favorite alumni of our school. But he didn't even graduate. He didn't even graduate. I've always I've always really appreciated that. <laughs> but, you know, long story short, he just he gets fed up with life. And so he decides to fight crime and just become a symbol. Mm-hmm. But what he runs into is it's not like you can just go on the on the street and fight crime. Like there's not. It's it's not this black and white struggle the way a lot of these narratives of of comic books and and TVs like to make it seem. Yeah. And I think that Super very much plays with that idea. In a in a particularly great scene, Rain Wilson is standing in line at a at a movie theater uh-huh. and someone cuts in front of him. He's like, "Look, like well, to join their friends." Yeah, you, to join their friends in the in the line. <laughs> And he he goes out of line, puts on the the costume that he has, and beats this man with a wrench. <laughs> and it's so funny because it's it's obviously you know I guess you shouldn't button line, but <laughs> it's this this harsh reaction to something like that. But when I was watching it, I think it's a very funny and dark movie, and I mm-hmm. think that his sense of humor is all over it. But for as low budget of a movie as it is, and you know it probably costs three, three to five million. It's not like it's it's chump change, but it's relatively low budget. But as far as structure and the progression of the story, it's an incredibly tight and compelling superhero story. Because mm. even though the joke or a lot of the joke of the movie is that rain Wilson is, is out of his mind and in, in doing these things out of, out of spite, the beats that, that goes on and the actions he takes to, to somewhat follow this, this path, I think very, very much showed James Gunn's comfort and familiarity with heroes and in comics as a medium. Hmm. And so after I watched Super the other day, I just remember thinking, wow, of course this guy does a big superhero movie. But Super came out in 2010, and this came out in 2014. Uh-huh. So Super was the movie that he made before they hired him to do this. That's and, crazy. Well, and just watching that in this back-to-back, it's it's amazing to see that that progression but also I think that all of the talent, the beat, the story writing, everything was there from the beginning, mm-hmm. which I think it shows a lot about James Gunn's range. Because mm-hmm. as as someone who wants to make movies and, you know, I can call myself a filmmaker all I want. But, you know, like I made a I made a class project junior year that got a B. But, you know, I haven't really made any money at it. It's not like. <laughs> It's not like I could say I'm a professional filmmaker at this point, but it's something I'm always kind of thinking about is with any project that I make, how do I make it as good as I possibly can? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, how do I show and and demonstrate a mix of of genres and ideas? Because I think that I've been writing this script called, called Affluenza, and I think it's really fun but when I started writing it, it was really this kind of home invasion, 
just subversion of the horror genre. I wouldn't even say a subversion. It was just kind of a straightforward horror movie. But the more I write it, the more I realize if I make this, you know, let's say I raise 10 grand or whatever it costs to make it and I shoot it, that very well could be the only professional video or film I ever get the chance to make. Mm. And, you know, I mean, hopefully it would do well and, and whatnot. But if that's the only thing I can ever make and get produced, everything that I want to do, I want to put in that movie. <laughs> and so there's just there's beats of it that I'm thinking of like it just there's moments when I think it can kind of devolve into this ridiculous action movie but it's one of those things where I think as long as it makes sense, having things that I want to do and to demonstrate that I could, if I can only do it once, like I have to do it. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the one of the things that is very kind of influential in it is that all of the characters in the movie have very specific personality traits. And one of them who I'm I was wanting to play, and so I was trying to think of the name for this character. But it's just got to be true. It like there's no reason I'm not going to make it me. But he's a pool boy that's very <laughs> meticulous, very, very much driven by discipline. Not not discipline and military discipline, but almost a zen like zen like proclivity to the tasks in front of him. Yeah. So you know, with the with the zen garden, you have this this swath of sand that you comb and rake every day mm -hmm. just for at night it to be blown away. And I really like the idea that he does this with a pool, you know, just his pool is his Zen garden and he's just the pool boy. It's so not even his pool. It's, it's just... not even his pool, but that's, that's his life and his satisfaction. And I like the idea that if there are action beats, not only is this kind of a foundational character character trait for him or me, but it also factors into the way he fights. Because uh -huh. I think in an instant, someone's about to get shot and he just nails them. He can just like break out Kung Fu. like Well, with the pool thing, though. Oh. <laughs> and it's it's one of those things where I have, and again, it's, it's all still kind of in the development, development in my head. <laughs> but I love the idea that he gets thrown underwater but no one knows this pool more than he does. And so he sicks the Polaris on whoever threw him in there, you know? And so it's one of these things where these character motivated beats and moments, I think, I think James Gunn does very well, but I've, I've been kind of studying that and thinking about that in my, in my own work. Yeah. Groot is an amazing character in this movie. <laughs> and I think, I mean, I think in the other movies, he's he's a punchline more so than he is in this. Mm -hmm. But in this, Groot is this fully formed plant mutant man that all he says is, I am Groot. I mean, we mentioned it a moment ago, but it's, it's like Scooby-Doo. But the design of that character is phenomenal. Because mm -hmm. with any CGI character at this level, if you look at Rocket, who is Bradley Cooper's raccoon character, whenever they, they show the breakdown of that, he has to have a skeleton. He has to have a muscular structure. They pretty much have to simulate the entirety of a biological organism so that when he moves, his muscles contract the way they should, the fur mats, and all of that. But Groot, Groot has a muscular structure 
but it's all organic plant material. Yeah. And so the way that we, if we like got naked and took our skin off, what would your muscles look like? What would your muscles look like? like yeah. When, when you, you know, did a curl or, or yeah. But they're all, it's just organic plant material, which I think is really, really kind of cool. And I think that, I think that in this movie, his power is, he has a lot of power because uh-huh. in one moment they're, they're shooting at them. And so he, he takes, he takes his arms and it just kind of builds this shield that kind of, it, it grows as though a tree is, a tree is growing, but it's all of his actions and his powers, I think, interacted really interestingly at different points in the story. Yeah. Um, just a side note to talk about my, my fig leaf tree in the corner here we've we've shed a leaf or two and so we're we meaning me are trying to currently learn learn a little bit about botany so as to not not kill this plant but mm-hmm. it's just a, a side note but the incredible <laughs> two um nick nick was gracious enough to give me his disney plus password and so i've been i've been exploring disney plus as of late and i watched the incredibles 2 which straight up Banger of a movie, Brad Bird, great director, great guy. Mm-hmm. But what really stands out to me about that movie is how unique and interesting all of the superheroes' powers are and the ways in which they have to fight, interact with, and just exist with people with other unique and interesting powers. Yeah. And I think that. I think that Groot's a real embodiment of this in that something would happen, like someone would try and shoot him, but the plant would grow up through the through the springs and the gears of this gun. And so Christopher Christopher McQuarrie, who he the usual suspects, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but mm-hmm. he he wrote that. That was his first movie and he won an Oscar. But long story short, he's he's directed and written a lot of movies with Tom Cruise. And I think to me, he's the best writer in Hollywood. And I think that what he gets so right is, is tension and problem solving. Cause if you and I are in an action scene, right? Sitting in this room, let's just say, I want to kill you to steal the keys to your car. Okay. Right. Just, I want to, I want to ball out in this 2010 gray Toyota Corolla. And so in this moment, right, I'm going to do everything I can to get it. Starting now, First thing I would do is like try and hit you with something, right? But I'm sitting uh-huh. on this couch and don't really have anything. So I might be able to swing this this microphone at you, but that would only stop you for a moment. Yeah. And so in that moment, you would obviously react with whatever's near you. But then it's not like we could just be swinging microphones at each other. I would have to counter that with something different which you would then have to respond to in kind. Mm-hmm. And so I think that good I think good action filmmaking is what let me realize this, but I think it applies to any sort of filmmaking is about creative problem solving. Yeah. In that there's there's something that the characters need to do and they're unsure of how to do it as are you of the audience, but they have to think of something interesting and unique to do it to to save themselves and that's that's all to say i think that was a very very loop around but i think that this movie does that very well too mm-hmm. in that star lord chris pratt um 
Peter Quill, his his technology is really interesting. You know, we see he has he has a, a sphere that he throws on the ground and it it makes a gravity ray yeah. at that point. And so it's one of those things where in a in a scene we see that he has to use that. We see that he has oxygen, we see that he has a jetpack, and we learn all of these things about the equipment and technology he has to fight people. And so once he gets in a situation where he has to has to escape, for instance, the the group of group of thugs or whatever whatever the spooky rock people are called, yeah, when they come in, he fights them with everything we've seen he has. But whenever he runs out and is just totally, totally with his back against the wall, he has to use his ingenuity to get out of it in a way that utilizes what we've seen. But at the same time, we haven't seen or thought of before. Uh And I think that I think that any good action movie needs to needs to kind of follow that as a formula. But I think. Any any real script, I think, does needs to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that as far as keeping a forward progression and a compelling story, I think that's a very strong criteria for writing. But I think that something like this is very strong in that regards, whereas James Gunn is able to keep this narrative compelling and engaging. And again, like we said, there are jokes, but the jokes aren't the point of anything. Yeah. The, the ingenuity and in what we're seeing these people do and accomplish, the I think, is... MacGyver-esque. Oh, yeah. Did you ever watch MacGyver? I never watched MacGyver. MacGyver is one of those shows that I have a lot of familiarity with through tertiary media that discusses it. Yeah. You know, there's a Simpsons episode that riffs on it. There's... Tons of other, I've heard it talked about in media or seen things that I know are doing a riff on it. And on Netflix, once I ordered the DVD of the first season and I watched the first episode and it's really just kind of a cheesy like TV show. (laughs) And it's one of those things where I think the central idea of MacGyver is this kind of ingenuity in this interesting utilization of technologies and what's around you. But I think that the ideas that come from that are probably more interesting than the show. Yeah. The I, show I, itself. It's always interesting to watch uh, things, you know, movies or, or whatever it is that are referenced a lot in pop culture. Like I watched Deliverance uh, mm-hmm. the other day and that you always hear of, you know, it's, oh, you know, it's this is just like the end of Deliverance or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you have this this idea in your mind of what it's going to be like going into it. You mm-hmm. know, obviously I know the the fighting banjos scene or, or something like that, but that that's all I knew going into it. Right. And then seeing the whole entire movie, you know, it's like, oh, this is what they were referencing. And right. like, you know, your ideas of the reference because you know it's it's a filter through a through a filter you know back to you so yeah it's, it's like going straight to that source and seeing what it actually is it's it's kind of just an interesting test on on kind of the telephone game in, in a sense but well so that really what you're describing is actually the anthropological concept of a meme and <laughs> And this not, is just going to be a, a whole entire podcast to, dedicated to memes. Like, in a well, <laughs> memes now have been appropriated to mean it's it's an image macro or 
Yeah. Or an adaptation of some sort of cultural item, you know, funny pictures with funny words and, and whatnot. But which I think is is and must be defined as a meme. But a meme at its core is a cultural artifact or piece of information that's shared and and distributed beyond what that piece itself is explicitly. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of those things where when Darth Vader says, Luke, no, when he says, no, I am your father, that's something that even if you've never seen Star Wars, you know that. But that's a great example, though, because the meme isn't, no, I'm your father. The meme is, Luke, I am your father. And it, it, it's, you know, it's wrong, but that's the that's the artifact that is become a part of society well and that's what that's what survives mostly Mm -hmm. and i think i think that meme theory i i took a class by (laughs) daniel dennett who's uh who's a big big wig philosopher and a lot of what he's done centers around the idea of consciousness you know and just how do we reflect on ourselves and exist as as autonomous beings in a lot of the a lot of the study of what makes people as a higher order conscious conscious organism unique is memes uh-huh. you know so so i don't want to get too deep into it but at at the end of the day i feel like memes reflect our humanity and i think that i think there's something beautiful in that <laughs> also you get great memes of of somebody saying to donald trump that he's fired he's fired you know it's that's exactly what the lamestream media would say <laughs> the <No>. the memes <laughs> you know matt our buddy matt said this and i think he might have even said this before i got into the the marvel movies but i said that i got the idea of avengers infinity war but i'd never seen it you know i used to be a hater yeah and matt said look even if you don't like it or think you'll like it you need to go see this movie because your meme clout will go through the roof Mm -hmm. and so when i saw infinity war i had the context in the backing for all of these memes that i'd been experiencing but i also then got really into it and so it's one of those things where like memes were the gateway to me becoming a Marvel Marvel fanboy. Well, and memes are so self-referential, like they'll reference other memes kind of and just become and go off and do their own thing. So without understanding those baselines of, you know, a, a finger snap or, or something like that, you know, you're not going to get when that meme transforms and becomes something else and relates to a topic that you would have maybe understood, you know, by itself, but because you don't have that other stem of knowledge, you're not going to get it. Yeah. One of the things that I think this movie is famous for and watching super and a couple other James Gunn movies, the soundtracks are always very, very good. Mm -hmm. And I think watching this in my memory, I just remember thinking, oh, wow, he got all the biggest 70s and 80s songs and just like put that into a movie. But with the exception of one or two songs, none of the songs in this movie were mega big hits. Uh They're songs from the 70s and 80s that were very catchy and good but things that weren't necessarily the most expensive song to license or, or anything like that. 
which to me shows a real talent as a filmmaker to kind of come up with these songs that, you know, I'm sure all of those songs were famous and people knew pretty well, but this kind of curation of music that this movie has elevated the status of Mm -hmm. because this movie's introduced our generation and even the generation after us into this kind of era of, of music. And I think that watching it in my mind, I was thinking, Oh, they probably just put the cliched big, big songs in it, but it's a really good curation of interesting and unique music. But I mean, I think what's interesting about it too is I think a very kind of a big trap that a lot of movies are falling into these days or, you know, even TV shows with Stranger Things, you have like these very, it will kind of set the movie with in the 80s or try to get, and I think you've touched on this before with, you know, they'll try to get the uh, the kind of the tone, they'll have this certain tone of the movies that kind of harkens back to that era of filmmaking or you know tv making whatever it is and they'll use the soundtracks and they'll use you know neon lights or you know whatever they'll you know the big products of the day or or stuff like that but i think it was very interesting in guardians of the galaxy how they use a lot of that 70s sort of like i don't know what it is motown funk I don't, mm. I don't know what kind of music genre you'd call it but they use a lot of that but that's kind of where it ends you know he's not trying to have this vibe of the 70s or anything like that he's just using music all from the same period but i think that's that's about all that uh, that carries over with that yeah well i think that i think that what i like about this movie too is that the music Diet diegetic is a film term where if something is diegetic, it exists in the universe and world of the movie. Mm-hmm. And so the soundtrack, the the popular songs that appear in this movie are diegetic in that they exist in that Peter Quill and they're listening to them in the movie. Yeah. And so the the counterside of that, if something is non-diegetic. Like, for instance, the titles, the credits of a movie are non-diegetic because yeah. they exist in the movie that we see, but as as an artifact of it as a medium, more so than something that exists in that, in that universe. And what I really like about everything being diegetic in this is not only that it's diegetic, but it's motivated by this mixtape given to Star-Lord by his dying mother. Mm-hmm. And so it's not only this music that we hear and like and enjoy, but it's meaningful in that it comes from her. And I think that one of the things that I've realized as as I've gotten older and, you know, infinitely wise as I am today, <laughs> that um I'm kind of joking, but only a little. But so much of what mu- makes music, art, food, anything powerful is where you've gotten it from mm-hmm. you know i'll i'll forever remember a song that my friend played a lot like for instance i don't know let's say we were we were driving to new york and someone kept playing karma karma chameleon yeah that that's a hypothetical situation but that would be in our mind forever linked with that yeah and so i think that the way peter quill engages with music in this sense 
it's it's personal and so the music is obviously good and interesting in and of itself but it comes from a place of of interaction and intimacy with his mother which i think is is really good i think i mean i think that music recommendations and in movie recommendations anything like that that someone will give you and share with you that's really a personal thing to open up and share, mm-hmm. you know? And so, so with the movie, it's a very sincere and earnest look at music and how something like that's powerful and shared because he's got gotten this from his mother. Yeah. And, you know, by lieu of that, his friends that listen to it on the ship, they then have it as well. But I think it's, it's really kind of interesting because I think that sometimes you meet people that are, putatively really into music and they can talk your ear about it talk about how their favorite song was composed in iambic pentameter and how they have such a beautiful perception of how how an orchestra could sound but if they get on the ox they play some stuff and you're like what what is that yeah and i think it's one of those things where you can sit on a reddit forum reading about something all you want and and learn a lot about it but what really makes music and things like that special is both the experiential aspect of it but also the communion and the sharing of it that you can you can take on definitely and i think i mean i think it harkens back to memes in a way too in that sometimes sometimes you'll meet someone and you can tell in talking to them that their main source of entertainment is memes. <laughs> and I think it's it's very apparent if someone ever says... So, so for instance, one of my favorite movies is Prometheus. Uh-huh. And I mention that to someone and they say, oh, isn't that that movie from that meme? <laughs> I don't know the meme. Like, I don't know what he's talking about. But also, no. Like, a meme is a fraction of a movie that's taken on, but it's not the movie isn't structured around the existence of this meme. Yeah, the movie isn't from the meme. The, the, mo- meme, the meme is, is from, from the, the movie. movie. <laughs> well, and if all you do is engage with... So there's primary, secondary, and tertiary sources, right? Yeah. Primary source is a story I'm telling you. Secondary source could be you retelling that, you've written it in a book. A tertiary source would be a meme or a reference to that in a song in whatnot and if all you do is engage with tertiary media i think that i mean memes specifically but i think that your conception of reality and existence is i feel like it's it's a little questionable because if you have to i don't know i think if you ever have to kind of reconcile that with with another person it's it's difficult well i think it's a little bit like biology in a sense as well you know you kind of have like the food chain uh, where this all all energy on the planet gets its energy from the sun, and not in a direct way, of course. But you know, you have the sun that's em- uh, releasing all of this energy towards the earth, and then that gets absorbed by plants, and some herbivore eats that plant, you know, and then we eat that orb- herbivore. At each step in that in that cycle in that in that chain there's a little bit of a loss of actually there's a lot of a loss of energy i I think Mm -hmm. between those chains so i think it's it's a little bit like that with the tertiary source getting that that information there each per each person that that 
information is getting passed on to loses a li- a lot of of the original message, a lot of the original things that would have made it very special. I think I think a level of sincerity is lost as well. Mm-hmm. In that I think that I think that that's something that people that like memes a little bit too much lack. Not that not that people that like memes a lot lack earnesty, but at a certain For point, full disclosure, we both like memes. We do quite like memes a bit. quite a bit. <laughs> well, I feel like you have to you have to like memes enough to at least understand what they are. <laughs> you know, because if we ask, if I ask my grandfather what a meme was, he he wouldn't know. Yeah, you know, or even even my parents, they might have a. But like we've spent enough time with memes as artifacts of of our our existence and culture that I think we do have a familiarity with them. But I think that I think that you owe it to yourself to engage with art. And you know, I I say art to mean any kind of entertainment, but you owe it to yourself to engage with art that you react strongly to. Mm-hmm. Cuz I think that I think I fall into the trap sometimes of, you know, spending a lot of time on Reddit or just watching random YouTube videos about nothing. And it's stimulation and it's entertainment to a degree, but rarely, no, I've never seen anything on Reddit that I've walked away and been like, wow, like I hate that or I love that. It's just, it's, it's noise at a certain point. Yeah. But you know, if we go, you know, watching this movie, I really liked this movie. There's other movies that I really don't like, but Things that I will have a strong reaction to and opinion on, I think, are ultimately more enriching. That's why I think going to art museums is really interesting with people because I think that, you know, I think that people will try and rationalize their understanding and and the development of a piece of art all day long. Mm-hmm. But when you walk through an art museum with someone, at your most honest, you just have to say your reaction to something. You know, I hate that. I love that. Here's why. And I think that there's this, there's just this level of, and sincerity is a weird way to put it, but I think that there's, there's a level of vulnerability in experiencing something like that, that I think is, is important because you're, you're opening yourself up to both engage with other viewpoints and and thoughts, but even beyond that, asking yourself, why do you like something and what is it? what does it do for you? Yeah. No, I, I really wish that I would have taken like an art appreciation or art history class in, in college Mm. and and gotten some kind of exposure to that sort of thing. I feel like if I ever walk around art museums, I'm just like the whole time I'm looking around at them as being like, well, I wouldn't hang any of this up in my, on my wall in my room or and none of this really looks that that appealing to me or you know maybe i might see a couple pieces where it's like yeah i could i could see this on my mantle but you know what i mean like it it's i'm not really walking through i guess feeling things or or you know having anything like that any emotional reaction to yeah. pieces i don't know maybe i am maybe i just that don't, is though i think don't that, that have is the the acumen to to identify it well you know what i think about the flags of different countries i think this is like this sounds like a tangent it's really not but i think states flags countries flags any sort of flag or cultural emblem 
to me, the ultimate test of its quality, how would it look on a t-shirt, <laughs> right? I think that New Mexico has the best flag because New Mexico's flag is already a t-shirt. You, know, <laughs> yeah. you get a yellow shirt with this like runic red symbol on it. Like you don't even have to work around that. Yeah. California's flag is similar. You know, you've got this bear. The California flag, that bear is funny looking. <laughs> like I know in your mind you're seeing like the flag, but I was at my friend Isaac's house and he had a big one hanging up and I just started laughing. I was like, does it always look like that? Like, is that actually what the bear's face looks like? Yeah. But it still looked pretty good on a shirt, you but know? That's the thing about flags. You know, you have to make them drawable by a third grader, you know, for them to really be that effective. You know, it's like Mexico's flag. I can't draw an eagle or whatever kind of bird that is that's, you know. Yeah. I, I can't do that or but the United States flag, you know, that in the basic concepts, you know, you're just drawing kind of some stripes and some stars and, mm -hmm. and things like that or you know, the Texas flag, you know, that's pretty easy. You know, that's just a two lines and a star, uh -huh. you know. Yeah. But yeah, with the California flag, imagine having to to sew like a whole entire bear onto your flag. It's not going to look that pretty well and i think too it it comes from different places i don't know when california was was established but it was it was definitely later than than america itself but if you think about betsy betsy ross um flag flag daddy betsy <laughs> ross all of the all of the designs for the original the colonial flag you'd have to cut fabric and stitch it together. Yeah. You know, and so that was how a flag had to be constructed so it could be developed and, and built. Have you ever quilted? Um, No, I have not. My sister made a quilt this summer and it took her a long time. Like, just like day after day, just going about this quilt. And it was a pretty simple quilt i would say you know just kind of square pieces stitching together and she was doing it with a sewing machine and and that sort of thing but getting all of those pieces to match up perfectly and get them straight and like have them exactly how she wants them to be it takes a lot of time and if you're doing it by hand if you're adding complicated steps like a star that's five sides that you have to you know that's that's pretty complex but i guess with the flag you know that's that's already going 40 feet in the air so yeah it's, it's a little bit easier it's it's a little bit further away so nobody's going to be viewing it quite as strictly quite as intently well and i think that i think that's one of those things where i love fashion i i read a lot of fashion magazines i you know i i watch stuff like that but I don't. I don't think I would ever no, noted have noted by you wearing a noted, olive olive green track. What am suit. I wearing right now? You've got to paint a picture for Kenny. Um, Kenny so, and my mom and anyone else that might have made it this far. These are basically just love letters to Kenny. These are love letters <laughs> to Kenny. I agree. So Truett right now is wearing a uh, a olive green, maybe a little lighter than olive green Nike track suit. I see one swoosh right now. Um, you know, he could probably go into a Slavic squat right now and fit right in. Uh, and uh, he also has on a uh, rose gold 
uh, watch with a uh, uh, kind of a baby pink wristband. Uh, he's sporting a, a a mohawk of sorts. That, imagine a mohawk mixed with a mullet. Uh, that that would be his hairstyle. And he is also wearing a uh, blue, sort of lightly striped uh, t-shirt horizontally so i know fashion like you can't you can't say that i don't (laughs) but i don't i've i've tried to draw i've tried to sew and i've tried to design clothes but i don't think i would ever have the patience or the mechanical skills to develop the minutiae of fashion yeah you know i have i have ideas for pieces of clothing that i think could be interesting but i don't have the resolve to learn something in that depth and so it's one of those things where my my appreciation and understanding of it as as kind of a hobby has to be removed. Whereas, you know, something like like this podcast, podcasting is something I'm really interested in enough to that I edit this twice a week and, and put it in to get the mechanics and everything down. Yeah. But if I had to sew or anything like that, not a You're not out. a chance. <laughs> There were so many good outfits in Guardians of the Galaxy. I really like the leather outfits of the Guardians. Once, So mm-hmm. it's after the prison break, and I think it's the Ravager ship. They have all of these like interesting and, and ornate leather just like bossing it up clothes. Like, like yeah. the hero clothes that I think are cool, but I think that... I think that leather is one of those fabrics that, you know, fabric, obviously it's made of cow, mm-hmm. but we're in a point now where you can synthetically replicate leather to the point where you could make a dress or a shirt or any number of items out of what might look like leather in ways that you could never physically replicate leather beforehand, Sure, which I think is interesting. Like I have a I have a pink suede jacket that it looks like it looks like it'd be cow, but cow couldn't really be that color, and it's a completely synthetic fabric that that replicates it, which I think is is interesting. What I think is also interesting about leather is it it kind of takes on these sexual connotations just as a fabric. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like wearing them wearing it as clothing just kind of just naturally has those sexual connotations whereas like cotton like linen i don't maybe satin is the only other thing that i could possibly think of in that satin's pretty sexy in that way like if you see some guy like walking down the street with a satin button-up shirt or something like that you're like you're gonna walk to the other side of the street wearing a lot of cologne right now (laughs) I yeah. I am not gonna pass that guy on the sidewalk. Let's just yeah let's just say that that guy smells very strongly of cologne. <laughs> I I think that leather is really cool. I think it I think it comes from like in the fifties, right? So like let's look at history up until nineteen fifty, mm-hmm. right? Let's say before nineteen hundred, what can you wear if you're not super rich? You can wear rags that are kind of sewn together different ways, <laughs> right? But you get to like 1900 and we get buttons, man. Like these buttons hold together these fabrics and shirts. But in the 50s, you can wear a leather jacket. Like 
Yeah, at that some point they come swag. up with the zipper. Oh my gosh. Did you know that 50% of zippers are made by the same Japanese corporation? I did know that. So so whoever's whoever's at home, if you have a jacket or a hoodie on, look at the zipper. If you don't, take your pants off, look at the zipper. 50% chance it says YKK on it, which like assumedly stands for something, but Japanese zippers. But all other zippers just suck. They just get caught and and don't don't work as well. So I mean it it makes sense to kind of have the monopoly. Zippers are like magnets and that I don't think anyone really understands how they work. <laughs> yeah. I know you're an electrical engineer. <laughs> but I vaguely know the idea of magnetism. Well, magnetism is one of those things that you know, I feel like academically the way I engage with a lot of subjects is that I passed and did well enough with every test that ever involved magnets. And I could probably recite to you and explain to you the answers and assumptions I provided on these tests. But as far as like an innate internalization and understanding of how magnetic forces work, I am at a loss. Yeah, it's it's weird. Well, the strange thing too is it's like magnetic force is like eight order of magnitude stronger than gravity or something like that. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's just hugely much more strong than, than the force of gravity. It's just that with the earth, you know, you're, you're dealing with this absolutely, you know, unimaginably huge thing that you're dealing with. Whereas like, you know what, an ordinary magnet, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty small. It's, you know, this is obvious, and I'm sure most people know this, but it's still mind-blowing to me that waves in the ocean are caused by the moon. That's ridiculous. Like, <laughs> like that's insane. Is it the waves in general, or is it... I, I always thought it was just the tides. Well, so I think the... The, okay, so like now that I have to explain and internalize this, I'm just my entire conception's going to go out the window. <laughs> but in my left hand, I have the Earth, uh-huh. and in my right hand, I have the Moon. Right, so the Moon's kind of going around, and all the water on the Earth is kind of pulling at the Moon at that point. Yeah, and so when it's high tide, the Moon has the water, and when it's low tide. The sun is over like the moon is over like a different place and they have the water. Uh-huh. That's probably not how it works. On a on a separate note though, I, I bring this up quite often when we go camping and whatnot. But how crazy is it that we only see one side of the moon? That's Absol- like a crazy coincidence. <laughs> like it just looks like a thing. Like it looks like an anteater. Well, the moon came from the earth, didn't it? Like, I think the the leading theory is that some huge asteroid hit the earth and kind of a piece of the earth kind of just popped out from the collision and just kind of settled together to what became the moon. That's... Makes sense. That's what I think is the overarching theory. And I don't know if some somehow in that in that physics... I don't know if it works out to be that the that the moon just gets the same. Well, that doesn't make sense. 
Well, because it's it's revolving at the same rate as us in in its orbit around us, so that we're seeing it. But I don't. I I took I took physics in. Well, it's it's because it's revolution on its axis is the same it, it revolves once around its axis and the same time it takes to go around the earth oh, okay so it's not it's not so proportional my, yeah i don't know how i'm sure there is something out there that that very well explains it or there might not be it might just be a great mystery but well when i think about space and I'm probably the stars gonna look this up later to be honest i think that i think that we i'll should. make a report next podcast teaching about space but it's so interesting to think about space and these giant celestial bodies and like how small we are and all that stuff but i really don't and like here's the deal mm. i'll hear on the news they're like look at 12 o'clock there's going to be this comet that's only here like every bazillion years and I never really go look at it. And whenever I do, it's just like a little sliver of light. Yeah. And so conceptually, as incredible as that may be, in my pocket, I have the most intense and focused like ray and beam of light that you can experience. And so like if I'm looking at the stars and comets for any sort of stimuli outside of like an abstract reasoning... Dude, like Candy Crush knocks the stars out of the water. It's <laughs> out of the water. That being said, though, have you ever looked through a telescope up at the night sky at something interesting? Um, nah, not really. I think we should try it sometime. The thing is with telescopes, telescopes are kind of like VR in that I feel like there's a point where a point of money and quality that a telescope or a VR headset yeah. or anything needs to be so that it's not just abjectly terrible and I feel like I've never gotten to that point with a telescope. We should we should we should rent one next time we go camping. I think there I think you can get like halfway decent ones for mm. kind of amateur viewing at like 200 300 bucks yeah we should something like that we should look into it yeah because even if it's like i think we'd have to weigh if we like buy one in that range or rent one in a different range but like either way we should definitely like we've got to look at it at night you can't look at the sun well and then there's different viewing times that are better than other ones you know there's just because of you know at certain times you know mars is closer to the earth than it is at other points in the year and, and that sort of thing so it, i mean it takes a little bit of coordination but i think it would be good the i like how uh peter quill who is star lord coming from earth they he was rescued or kidnapped more more so kidnapped by this this group of ravagers and it's a running joke throughout that they all wanted to eat him <sighs> to taste him but I feel like from a culinary standpoint, like if there are some aliens out there, I'd be really interested to see what they taste like. Because yeah. I feel like their their bone, not even their bone density, but their biology would have to be entirely dictated by the gravity and climate of their planet. And so like if you think about a lobster, you know, like eating a lobster versus eating a eating a chicken it's just so much different because of the scenario that that creature has to exist mm -hmm. like some weird space worms might be pretty tasty well i mean 
but in that vein though you know they could they could just be like non-carbon life forms just like you know everything that you have ever eaten is made out of carbon like you know sugar is carbon and you know plants are made out of carbon pencils are made out of carbon pencils are made out of carbon they're not that tasty that's true but do you have any pencil pencil scars i don't i have a lot of other scars but just from so when i was in fourth grade okay first off i have a little beef to pick with i don't know who but when i was in elementary school i really liked reading goosebumps books and some kid got triggered and so his mom was like wow you guys can't read Goosebumps books. So they took Goosebumps books from the library at my elementary school, which like, I know they thought they were doing the right thing, but you know who did that? Nazis did that. Like, like I'm not saying this, this group of parents were, were on that level, but they were on some level. Yeah. But, but anyways, I bought my own because, because I'm a stud like that. Mm-hmm. And I was reading through. It was you a, had your own money in, I, in the sixth grade. Oh, no. This was fourth grade. It was definitely from my parents. <laughs> but I was reading. It was one of those choose your own adventure, adventure books. And it was at a carnival. And one of the things it said, it said, take two really sharp pencils and hold them apart. And you have to close one eye because when you have one eye closed, you don't have any depth perception. So you can recognize space, but without your two eyes to reconcile it, given two different, different positions, you have no real sense of, of positioning. So it said, see if you can touch the tips together. And it was like, if you could, you went to so-and-so page. And if you couldn't, you went to the other one, but I couldn't. And now I have a, now I have a, a lead scar in and my. I have a lead scar in my hand. No, I don't have. I don't have. Maybe I do, but I have just so many freckles all over my body. It's just. I just can't see them. I don't know. But. Idiot. <laughs> I have a lot. You know, we were in Boy Scouts together, and like in Cub Scouts, they give you. You know, you're supposed to kind of practice with a with a little pocket knife trying to whittle stuff and things like that. I was mm. apparently very bad at it and just sliced up my fingers to, to no end. So mm. I just have all of these scars and my fingerprints. Random nicks. Yeah. It's pretty fun. I, I enjoy them. Yeah. Well, I feel like it'd be cool. I feel like it'd be cool to see like a portal into your past self. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's one of those things where if you could only see one like particular moment of yourself like what if every time you accidentally nicked yourself as a kid you can see that well i always thought it would be a very interesting idea like if on your birthday you get to meet yourself on your birthday from every other birthday you've ever had Mm -hmm. does that make sense so it's like my birthday when i'm 50 i get to meet me when i'm still you know me right now yeah and it's like my version of myself as i am right now you know how would i get along with my version of myself when i was on my 16th birthday well so right now at your age you can meet one other age person that you can meet one other age of yourself we would all be in the same room it'd be like a high school reunion yeah oh so it's all of you yeah see i feel like to me but somebody would have to take care of like the 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 little ones yeah the (laughs) three-year-olds and 
I feel like I would and like the to 96 go. Ninety-six year olds. <laughs> I'd like to go back in time to like sixteen-year-old me or seventeen-year-old me and be like, "Hey, you ever drank a beer?" And I'd be like, "Of course, like, of course, like, yeah, man." And then just like haze myself and be like, "Okay, <laughs> drink this pledge." I think that that would be quite quite satisfying. You would just give yourself alcohol poisoning, just. Yes. Just to spite yourself? Like what what's the what's it's the a, reasoning? It's a learning experience and it's really it's it's a lesson not to really trust yourself. It, so you we've been on a snipe hunt, right? Uh -huh. Snipe apparently that's not a universal thing. <laughs> but in in short, a snipe hunt is when you take a group of young kids into the woods to search for a species of animal called a snipe. And so you have to describe the snipe in kind of abstract terms, give them a little description of its of its characteristics, but obviously a snipe doesn't actually exist. I think and, they're I think they exist in like Australia or like Africa or something. Australia doesn't actually exist though. I might be I might be wrong. No, but but, but the the point of the exercise is you take them in to look for it and you either pop out and scare them or you just go home thinking no one had found a snipe. And so for the rest of your life, you have that memory and you don't realize that there's no such thing as a snipe until you decide to search for a snipe with kids yourself. Uh -huh. And I was telling that to my friend Brandon and I was like, yeah, like I think I would, I think I would take my kids on a snipe hunt. And he's like, why? And I was like to teach them a lesson and he was like, what would that lesson be? Not to trust you? And I don't know, but I think that... That's that's probably the lesson there. I'm I'm writing a, a script, right, passively writing. I've kind of had the idea for it for a while, but it's called Snipe Hunt. And it's about a group of kids that are on a snipe hunt led by one of their, their patrol leaders in the Boy Scouts. But they end up finding a chupacabra. Oh my god! And so they think they found this like mythic creature of the of the snipe, but they've actually found this horrible monster. <laughs> and I love the idea that similarly, I want to play Truett like the patrol leader <laughs> in this, but they think I die, and so I disappear. And later, after like all of them have died, one of them finds me and is like freaking out. And I'm like, "Hey, dude! Like, don't worry, like." It's all good. Like, there's no such thing as a snipe. And he's like, you don't understand. Like, Johnny's dead. Jimmy's dead. Like, they're all like. Ah, ah. I'm like, no, like, it's a joke. There's no such thing as a snipe. And then you hear this horrible sound of the chupacabra that you've been hearing the whole time. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, come on, dude. Like, there's no such thing as a snipe. And then I, like, call it to me. And then I'm like. This is my pet. I don't say this is my pet, but it's just like this thing is my pet. And then I make it eat the kid. Oh, my God. I think that would be really funny. <laughs> I, think that would be... I want to make like an episode of Goosebumps. I mean, obviously, Goosebumps is done, but something with that kind of tone and length. And I think that that would be the episode that I would I would <laughs> go ahead and make. I But yeah, the problem is, you know, you would have to introduce the idea of snipe hunts. Because I don't think that is, you know... Universal. Yeah. I don't think that that is quite a meme of, in of itself. Yeah. I think that 
I think that it's really, I feel like that's a really kind of funny and like specific thing that we had happen in our lives yeah. that we went on a snipe hunt. Like, I'm glad, I'm glad for that. I feel like I know a lot of people from like New York in other really urban places that have just never been outside. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, I'm sure they've been outside, but like, we've just like slept in the woods in like random hillbillies yards. Like, New York nerds haven't done that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I remember I went like we did this wilderness survival camp out, and I just slept under a tree because we had to like make shelter or something like that. And I was like, nah, trees are already shelter. Well, as my as my camping career has gone further, I've I've been driv- driving a Prius for the past few years, and there have been several times when I've gotten to my destination like set up my tent, got out my sleeping bag and everything, and then tried to go to sleep and then just realized it's hot and uncomfortable and I've just gone to sleep in my Prius. <laughs> so now, like, I'll bring the stuff I need for a tent, but, like, more than likely, I'm just leaning the seat back and sleeping. <laughs> and, like, it's a it's a Prius, so, like, you can run it all night and, like, it doesn't use a lot of gas. I've never had the battery die on me, knock on wood, but, like, I've been warm, though. Yeah, I. But that's that's where, it, that's the only thing is that you know, like if the battery dies, you're in a worse situation than if you were just uncomfortable during the night. But that's when you learn something about yourself. I've always, I th- I think this was maybe a comedian. I I forget where I heard it, but I stick by it. Learning something, or pain, is just learning something very quickly. Hmm, that's interesting. So stubbing your toe is just you learning that that ledge was there. Or yeah. That, that stump or, you know, rock was there. And you learned very quickly that that rock was there. Yeah. You know. That's interesting. I like that. You know, if you were just tried to start your car and your battery was dead, it'd be a very painful experience. But you would learn very quickly that your battery was dead. You would learn that your battery, <laughs> you would definitively know that your battery was dead. That's wise. I don't know, Nick, do you have any, do you have any closing thoughts? I think we're, we're reaching that time of the night. Uh, I, you know, I learned, learned today that, that Alex Trebek passed away. Oh no. It's, you watch a lot of Jeopardy. I don't know what they're going to do, but. It's uh, it's with a heavy heart that I have to report wait, that. Wait, wait. Alex Trebek died today. Yeah, or some other day. Oh, I I thought you were gonna you were gonna phrase it back as a question. But oh, oh, I don't know how Jeopardy really works, but I think that that would be the right. It'd be like this Alex... person died today. Doo doo. Who Do-do-do. is? <laughs> Who is Alex Trebek? Who? Okay. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. Well, we can cut that out if you don't want to leave it at the. This isn't such an unhappy. No. This is in honor of <laughs> Alex Trebek. Um. Good on you. No, well. It's. Okay. Well, this has been the Decadent <laughs> Entertainment Podcast. The show where we combine food, (laughs) film, and friendship. Good night.